With more than a year in on the relief valve, I've spoken with folks from all kinds of businesses, and through their generous sharing, I've come to understand much more about the world around me. Now, I'm greedy, and I want to learn more all the time. And I'm also trying to figure out what the new normal is shaping up to be, which is ultimately a product of all of our visions combined. I'm always looking for people to talk with for the podcast. Everyone has interesting stories in their lives, and I want to know about what makes you who you are and what your vision for the future is. So if you're interested in sharing, drop me a line at jrock, J-R-O-C-K, at jnrprod, jnrprod.com, and let's chat. You know, if there's one theme I've been contemplating this week, it has been adaptation. We've all spent a lot of energy and time adapting these past couple of years. Even if you didn't have any intention of having to, conditions and changes that the pandemic brought to all of us meant adapting to working from home, uh, new ways of doing our work, new ways of having fun, and especially new ways of communicating with each other. And through all of this time, I've longed to talk with a teacher because how we provide education was completely flipped on its head during COVID. Our kids had to figure out how to keep moving forward when everything in their lives became chaos. And the guides charged with taking them through, the teachers, were also not in a position where they were prepared for all of the challenges that were to come. A lot of talk gets put on the places where we didn't reach the prize. But when you think about it, every teacher who figured out how to go from standing at a blackboard to standing in front of a webcam and managed to keep the attention of their students so they got through what will likely be a couple of the most difficult years of their lives is a bona fide hero. You know, we really ought to be treating our teachers better. Mitch Ziegler retired last June from a 35-year career in teaching. For 31 of them, he was the advisor of the award-winning newspaper and yearbook at Redondo Union High School in Redondo Beach, California, where he also taught AP English and photography. The recipient of numerous advising and service awards over the years, Ziegler was named the H.L. Hall National Yearbook Advisor of the Year by the Journalism Education Association. Ziegler has been married to his wife, Julie, for 33 years, and he has two adult sons. Mr. Ziegler, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I retired from 35 years in teaching in June. I um, spent 31 years at Redondo Union High School where I advised newspaper and yearbook. I also taught AP English and photography during that time period. Okay. Which was the harder class to teach, AP English or uh, newspaper and and yearbook? I would say AP English. Um the, the problem of English is just the burden of grading. So I, I fled English in, um, I forget, my last year was 2013. And what happened was around 2008, I started waking up at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning, just sort of generally thinking about work and school. And it was, I felt like the workload was killing me. And my principal okay. took pity on me. Well, I don't know if she took pity on me. It wasn't so much that, but she... Um, 
an opening came up to teach photography and she suggested it for me and I jumped at it and it basically saved my life as far as I'm concerned. But also not only because of the stress, but it was also just something new and different, which is, I think, the biggest problem teachers face. I don't know how... I don't know how anyone could last as a, let's say, a math teacher for 35 to 40 years, uh, especially if they're teaching the same subject. It just seems incredibly boring to me. In the world of teaching, is there any way that you change your your subject, especially, I guess, at the the primary level, right? Primary and secondary school level before college. Uh, do you rotate through different um, subjects? Do you have to have different credentials in order to do that? Absolutely. The credential is the problem. Um, I mean, I could change the English class I would teach. I was credentialed in any English. Um, but given mm-hmm. my schedule, I, you know, AP English was really what I was interested in. I needed motivated students. Um, okay. And an elementary teacher, the only choices are to change grades. Um, oh, okay. and, the problem, and the problem with that sometimes is really learning a whole new curriculum. And that is incredibly mm-hmm. stressful. Yeah. And, and I think the problem is, and there's been, if you look at the history, at least, you know, what I'm aware of in teaching history, there's been different methods tried to vary it for teachers. I mean, there used to be things called mentor teachers. Okay. But, the, but the reality is, is that often turned into kind of a patronage system where, okay. you know, the buddy of the principal was given a mentor job, which basically meant one period off. And there was real, no real accountability. Um, I feel that that was happening some. I mean, this is going way, way back. Um, yeah. And that just sort of dried up. The problem is the profession has no path for people to change their jobs. Uh, I mean, for me, it was pure luck to be able to do photography because, yeah. uh, you know, I started, I really got interested in photography when we bought digital equipment around 2001. Yeah. And then I just kept involved. And and so I I knew it anyway. So that's how I learned. I learned by doing it and having to teach the students how to do photojournalism. And then I was able to just sort of step in, even though I didn't technically have a credential for it. But I had enough teaching experience where it wasn't really an issue. Although in my cynicism, I think if the school wanted it to be an issue, they would have made it an issue. Okay. But they liked me. And so I got away with it. And I... There's a lot of that that goes on for sure in our system. It's not what you know, it's who you know sometimes. Just like the movie business, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, do you have a background in journalism as well? I mean, you've been you've been the the advisor to the school newspaper for many years. Yeah, it was 33 newspapers and 31 yearbooks by the time I was done. No, the fact is I was coerced into journalism okay. um, back in let's see, you know, 1988, maybe. And what happened is uh, the school was having declining enrollment and teachers were getting pink slips. So I was asked during the summer if I would teach journalism. And I knew if I said no, I had no job. So I said, sure. And in those days, in that school, in that class, it was a complete dumping ground. Oh, okay. And oftentimes the English, I mean, sorry, the newspaper advisor and often the yearbook advisor is an English teacher because mm-hmm. people think writing is writing and there's no particular yeah. training that goes into anything. And um, But, you know, if my name was going to be on the paper, I have enough of an ego where it sure was going to be decent one way or the other. Right. 
So I, you know, I, I found people who knew what they were doing. There was a neighboring school where I went to that advisor and talked with him and he was sort of my touchstone for a while. Got a okay. lot of great stuff from him. I immediately re, um, recruited the, from the previous class, the, all my honor students. So I, yeah. for, first day of class, I had seven of those kids in class. And, and we were just too, we were all just too stupid to know if we were, you know, <laughs> crossing boundaries, what we were doing. Um, the, some really funny things happened. I got called into a meeting once with the principal, two assistant principals and an assistant superintendent of instruction because yeah. they were concerned about content in the newspaper. I was so naive that I didn't know that I should have been infuriated by the whole situation. Okay. It was a complete okay. and it was it was just an attempt to sabotage me. And, you know, eventually what they wanted and there was really nothing wrong with the content of the paper. But what they wanted was prior review. And okay. in my innocence, all I said, as you know, we work to deadlines. My door is open all the time. Anytime you want to come in and know what's going on in the paper, just come on over. Well, okay. my big my big lesson in education that day was if they have to come to you, they won't. No one ever showed up. You know, I kept building and getting better educated as to what was going on. And by the time I came to Redondo, I was pretty savvy about what we were allowed to do um, and okay. what my rights were. Did the school district put a lot of restrictions on the speech that uh, a student newspaper can make? No. Um, when I first started, they were using a soft approach. They never really tried any kind of overt censorship, although they did. Oh, my gosh. The thing they did, they it turned out that old district had rules that were completely against the law. And it oh, had to okay. do with things like, you know, no mentions of excretory functions. Well, we read a cartoon once, and I think it, the Banning High School in those days was the first school to ever drug test athletes. And and a kid did a fairly innocent um cartoon there was a boys bathroom and there were two word bubbles that came out and one was just like hey can i borrow some of yours in other words it was a cartoon about trying to evade a drug test and they brought okay. that up as an example of violating district policy i go well no it's not i only did i only did the newspaper there for two years and then i came to redondo where it was um I, th I think Redondo respected those rights because of previous advisors. Like, for example, one principal tried to discipline the previous advisor by putting a letter in her file because her students covered a student walkout. And it was very clear that the principal was completely out of line. She right. went through the gre grievance process and had it pulled from her file, as it should have been, you know. but. What you learn there is a, a really good lesson that the newspaper can cover any kind of protest. Yeah, you know, the Ed Code is very precise. It cannot um, be obscene, cannot be libelous, cannot create material disruption. And okay. that did none of them. Now, so in other words, we can cover a protest. We just probably couldn't. We could not advocate a student walkout in an editorial that advocated the breaking of a valid school rule i.e. Okay. you can't tell kids to be truant. That makes sense. Yeah, and so that never was a problem in all my years there. Um, in fact, my very first principal there, 
he actually almost, he didn't quote Ed Code, but he came close to it when I just gave him a heads up. It's 1991, probably, where yeah. I just wanted to give him a heads up. They were doing a story about gay students. And he simply, you know, he knew, he laid out the three reasons why the school couldn't ban it. He asked, mm-hmm. Perhaps we not use the student's name. And in 1991, it would have put the student's life at risk to use their rights, uh, which is probably the greatest change I've seen in my career as a, as a teacher. I mean, okay. The acceptance of gay students has been phenomenal during that okay. time period. But other than that, there's never been an issue. Okay. Um, did you, when you started out in your own education, did you always want to be a teacher? Um, no, not always. I had no idea. My dad was a pharmacist, and so naturally I had the idea that I would become a doctor because that's what you do in Jewish families. Um, But, you know, I realized pretty quickly I didn't care that much about science. I thought maybe psychology. But I just remember in a career center as a sophomore, what do you like? What are the things that interest you in life? And one of the things, one of the conclusions was I should become a history teacher based on everything I saw. And I loved history at that point. Um, it was almost, I wouldn't say I was fanatical about it, but what I was, was in, I was, I'm one of the best students I know. So my teacher had, I don't know, you remember, you know, the Will and Ariel Durant history of Western civilization. My teacher had an 11, the 11 volumes in his classroom. And I had to use one of the volumes for some research on, um, it was on romanticism and on Goethe in particular. And I started reading the book and I just was fascinated by it. And I, throughout the rest of the year, I read some more volumes. I mm-hmm. mentioned it to my parents. I showed them the book of the month club offered the series. Yeah. You know, if you joined and then I, we went and they bought me the whole series. And I, by the end of the summer, I had read the series, all 11 volumes. Um, okay. Just because that's the type of a student I was when I, you know, I'm interested. I usually take a deep dive. Okay. I mean, it even goes back crazier. In fourth grade, I read, what did we, we had like a home, we had the world book encyclopedia and I yeah. literally read A through Z. I read the encyclopedia. Huh. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, you know, it was, it was fun yeah. and if I didn't care, I'd skip it over, but I was weird in that I read most of, most of it. And that's yeah. just who yeah. I am as a person. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to UC Santa Cruz. Okay. So native California, your whole uh, whole life? Yeah, I I graduated from Maricosta High School. And one of the reasons I ended up at Santa Cruz is I had this phenomenal teacher, an English English teacher. She's sort of my first mentor. Um, It was an honors English, just one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. But more than anything else, she um, fostered a love of learning. And so... As a sophomore, I loved history by eight, by 11th grade. And of 11th grade, I was more interested in literature. And, you know, every day we'd go in and we'd discuss ideas from the books. And then she was seen as kind of a almost an, a hippie. I mean, I was in her room oh. in 19, it would have been the 77 to 78 school year. She had a big, a thick shag carpet. She sat on a beanbag and it was a discussion class. Yeah. And we all kind of sat on the, on the rug around her and we had our discussions. Now we also wrote more in her class than in any other class I'd ever been in. And yeah. on writing days, we all we would do is set up tables real fast and we'd be there and we'd do timed writings or whatever it is we had to do. And that became kind of, that just became 
you know, the person who created a kind of passion for um, also, I think for teaching. I mean, at that, yeah. I, I'm not, I kind of resisted it for a long time in college. Uh, the reason I went to Santa Cruz was partly because I had my choice of NAUC just by grades alone or by SAT score. It's, you know, different today where you, yeah. you know, I, to get into UCLA today, I would have been iffy. It's like getting an, it's easy, it was easier getting into an Ivy League in those days yeah. than UCLA is now. But I had my first choice of NAUC, but I chose Santa Cruz because it was small. Okay. Um, and classes were small, which meant most classes were based on discussion. And that was the real reason why I went there. And I was fortunate that I lived with three other just brilliant friends. I mean, the fact yeah. is they're smart. They're smarter than I am. I mean, I could keep up, but they were definitely smarter. And we had, you know, long dinners where all we would do is talk about whatever. And sometimes we were in the same classes and, you know, discussions of politics and literature and philosophy. And it was just an ideal environment. Yeah, that is the ideal of college, right? The just being able to sit around for hours at a time talking about anything and everything um, and sharing views with other people. Absolutely. Um, it was a great time. And then it only took me a couple of years after that there's it, it seemed like such a teaching seemed like such an obvious choice i just wanted to make sure mm -hmm. um, i was interested in maybe the nonprofit world at one point but thank god i never did that because i can't even manage my own life um, <laughs> one of the, teaching works for me because i need deadlines and okay and six deadlines a day at least in the beginning gave me a kind of structure in which I could really thrive. Okay. So, and that's just, and I didn't know that at the time. I realized it afterwards. Right. Um, you know, I've often thought about like, what else could I have done? I could have been a journalist, but I would have been, I would have been unemployed 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I can see that. But you, you also would have had time in what was still the great era for journalism, right? Right now is just, just bad times for journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, my son, who studied in your journalism class, right. went on to become a journalist. He got his degree at Cal State Fullerton, and he's working in the gig economy now, right? He's he's a um, features editor for an online blog, um, and it's just it's just brutal. They just don't treat people particularly well. Um, what do you what do you think of the state of journalism and, and media in general nowadays? As somebody who's taught it for so long. You know, teaching at a school like Redondo, the goal was never for my students to get into journalism. Okay. And just, it, it, you know, it just wasn't kind of, it wasn't the socioeconomics of the community didn't really lend themselves to that. And then journalism's been dying for a long time at this point. So yeah. it wasn't necessarily the most viable of career options, but as a skill set, it's insane how in demand those skills are everywhere in the corporate world or wherever i would have lots of success at back to school nights where i'd ask you know parents who were engineers to raise their hands and i'd say keep your hand up if you think knowing how to communicate well is a valuable skill and every hand yep. is up right yep. because jerk because engineers can't write and oftentimes yep. they can't communicate and my, I remember my brother commenting how in the corporate world in general, he, he worked for banks, but if you could write in addition to everything else, you definitely had 
um, a viable advancement yeah. path. Yeah, I found that um, as a as an engineer, as a manager. So my backstory is I started out as an actor um, when I was a kid. Um, worked professionally for until I was about twenty four, and then um, and instead of becoming a waiter or a bartender while I was looking for acting jobs, I took some money from the first big acting job I worked on. I bought myself a computer and I taught myself how to program and became a consultant. And back in the eighties, when I did that, you didn't have to have a college degree. You didn't need any of that kind of stuff. You just needed skill set to be able to go out and do it. But I found over the years that having the acting background, being able to stand up in front of a group and present, being able to organize your thoughts and, and, and be expressive in the way you present them as well, has really been helpful for me. And then I took the time to learn how to write as well so that I could make sure, you know, I could write the presentation or the article that I wanted to get out. But the creative part of me helped to make the business success as an engineer. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, my students, my former students, there are some in, in journalism, but there's also a whole series of them who've used their I had a, a pair of twins who went on to UCLA who both tell me that journalism was by far their most useful class, more mm-hmm. so than anything they took at UCLA. Well, one of them was, you know, made an important aide to Elizabeth Warren and was running oh. all her social media. Um, the other one was working for, I believe, the um, AFL-CIO and was working on elections and things like that. But they were communication experts. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were doing real well. Um, should we be focusing more in education on things like social media, how to, as, as from a journalist perspective, the impact it has and how to use it? I don't know if effectively is the right word because saying you're using social media effectively could be abusive. But, um, you know, should we be teaching that kind of skill set more, uh, do you think? More than anything else, we need to be teaching media literacy. Okay. Um, there's nothing I have to find. I'm going to look for this while I'm... I have a friend who ha- has a mantra. Um, he was a okay. former president of um, Journalism Education Association. And yeah. the fact is, the thing that... prop The greatest danger to our democracy is, in fact, media illiteracy. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. Demonstrated media literacy proficiency must be required to graduate high school and be admitted to college in the military. Yeah, no, I I agree. There's nothing more important right now. Yeah, yeah. I grew, growing up, you know, you had certain news sources that were more balanced and easier to trust. Um, today we live in a world where everything is you you go directly to the place where you get the feedback on what you already believe in rather than, uh, you know, crossing perspectives. And one of the things I have, there's two things that I've preached as my mantra in this area. Number one, you have to understand the difference between entertainment and journalism. Uh, journalism is that reporter who is reporting facts for the Associated Press on the ground in the war zone. And, and it's not biased reporting, it's strictly facts. And entertainment is Rachel Maddow, right? Right. Uh, anybody whose job is to purely comment on the news rather than report the news is not giving you the news. They're entertaining you. And you have to understand that difference um, Absolutely. and find the balance. 
I mean, I've kind of learned that, I mean, I can't tell you the last time I've actually looked at television news. Yeah. I might, I might watch television if there's a natural disaster because the reporting on those is usually pretty decent. Usually. Yeah. Um, but I don't trust a single television news source because there is no real difference, even on straight news between the news division and the entertainment division. Yeah. Not really. Not when yeah. ratings come into play. And and I feel it, you know, it's so funny because now there's multiple sources for that. But even in the old days, um, you know, with only three networks, they, you know, even in the straight news business, you're making decisions about what to report. Always. Yeah. There's always a yeah. form of, um, yeah. of censorship, so to speak, because we yeah. report on A, but never on B. And there wasn't that much difference on the major networks. But you know, I still think it was a time there was a bit more, I think, consensus about what constitutes fairness and decency. Yeah. Um, you know, now I'm, I'm a total dinosaur. I mean, I still re- I still get home editions of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. Okay. And, and I get the Washington Post online. So, I mean, I live in my mm-hmm. own little bubble. But, I mean, the fact is the New York Times has always had its um, yeah. agenda. I mean, yep. that's how we got yeah. into the first Gulf War. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and I've, what is it? Judith Miller. I mean, oh, my God. Yeah. All she did is talk. She talked to the generals. And yeah. that's what you got. I mean, that other narrative was out there, but it was through, I believe, the Knight Ritter. And so yeah. I pointed out it was the Knight Ritter publications had the more accurate story. And they were talking to yeah. the colonels <laughs> oh. <laughs> who, who weren't. But um yeah, so sometimes, you know, like something like the New York Times is more than it's not so much ideological as it's based on access journalism. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you're right. I spent um I spent a few years working at KCBS KCAL. Um mm-hmm. the the two CBS affiliates in uh, LA and they do 11 hours of broadcast news a day and I had the chance to like sit through the the daily, you know, meeting where the news director is choosing the stories that they're going to do because for 11 hours of broadcasting a day, they did six stories and that was it. They just kept repeating them over and over and over again. And, and they'd have the opportunity to do something more important perhaps, and would still choose the bear walking the streets in Chatsworth as the most important thing that's happening that day. And if it's raining, they have someone on the foothills and if it's um, okay. And there's always a diet. And there's always a car chase or there's always, you know, the, the right. hood report, which like, what's the latest atrocity in, yep. in our yep. urban centers? Yeah. I mean, I think I used to watch it for sports, right? Yeah. yeah. But we don't need that yeah. anymore. That's for that's, sure. Now we get on true. our cell phone. I go to the ESPN app and I have whatever I need score wise. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of funny as you watch this in our culture, like we just finished watching, um, the morning show, incredibly high production values, amazing yeah. cast, honestly, some nuance and great writing. Mm-hmm. But yet in the end, you're getting wrapped up into something that literally has no significance of any kind because it's the news division. And I don't think it's a mistake that the guy who's running the news division came from the entertainment division. There is no yeah. difference. Yeah. No, no, you're and, absolutely right. And it was almost demoralizing. You think, well, I'm there's, they're trying to get me to care about some of these characters, but they're all just doing nothing. 
So you retired at the end of last year, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which means you lived through the, the pandemic year. Well, well, I mean, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but you lived through the year where everything shut down. Um, as, as a teacher and as a teacher who actually is teaching a class also that required a lot of hands-on kind of tactile work for things like the yearbook, I assume. Right. What was that like? There was a bit of panic. I mean, fortunately, March 13th was fairly late in our year. Yeah. Um, but still, we didn't have, and we had, for some reason, I mean, I think we started getting hints of everything happening in February. And so yeah. I remember pushing kids to make sure they get as many sport to photograph as many of the sports as they could. Okay. Before anything happened. And that was a big deal for us. Um, Some of it was pre-planning. Some of it on the yearbook was the fact that my kids were using InDesign and Photoshop online. Oh, okay. So you'd already moved to the cloud products. Yeah, in a sense. It was being done through the yearbook. The yearbook company has a product that uses Citrix server, Citrix, whatever. Okay, yeah. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. when we're all Macs and actually converting to what's essentially a PC desk is kind of a weird challenge. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so they were already doing that. Um, when that day came, I was able, we, we use a big uh, server in the classroom for okay. photographs. And that was our okay. biggest issue because the kids had everything on their computers. They were ready to work. Everything was being turned in online anyway. But I mean, and I guess that was the big issue. And but we were able to pivot really well. I think on the very last day, around the fifteenth, there's a photograph of my students at uh, Clatch Coffee. They're all sitting yeah. around the table wearing masks, but they're communicating on their computers with everybody on the staff and coordinating all our, all their coverage. And so we did okay. pretty well. I mean, we did surprisingly well. We had pretty much everything we needed. Uh, the the girls finished the book on time. The problem is the, the yearbook plant had shut down. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so we ended up, right. We had a summer delivery as it turned out, but I'm still proud. So proud of them from actually making that deadline. So that was weird. Newspaper just shut down. We did yeah. a senior, we did a senior edition. We formatted the paper so that to an eight and a half by 11 so that, um, we'd post it online and then people could just download it. If they wanted to print a page, they could. Okay. Right. So we came up with some convenient for the parents. Okay. Were the kids able to, um, reports, real report stories go out and, you know, not face to face, obviously, but still had, they, they picked up enough of the skill set to be able to reach out, whether it's online or by phone and do the interviews remotely and do all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. They pivoted really well with Very that. Cool. Um, and again, we were using the same yearbook software with the newspaper kids. So we had cut down a lot of the deadline time in the classroom because they could do most of their work from home because right. they had the access to the software. The real story okay. is really not that year, but last year. So okay. what was, you know, and there were points when I was seriously wondering if we would have a yearbook. Okay. I knew, I knew newspaper would not be a problem because we had already been moving toward um, online. And by online for us, that meant really Instagram. 
Yeah. And so Instagram's a really nice tool. And then we, and as the year went on, they discovered some extra tools that was, that were easy to link everything to the web page. So that was pretty amazing. But, um, I, you know, I knew at the beginning of the, during the summer, I knew that it was going to be an opportunity for newspaper and it was going to be a really scary process for yearbook. Okay. Um, this is 2020. This is the, well, 2021 year, summer of 2020. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And okay. I knew, I knew it would be really, I mean, we, everyone in my world, my yearbook world, we all knew that, you know, photographs were going to be a big problem that we could no longer cover events. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when you cover an event, in journalism, you're really still covering people. Yeah. So yeah. the event, who cares about homecoming? The home, who cares? It means nothing. The only people who care about the homecoming king and queen are the homecoming king and queen, <laughs> um, and those who are on the court. No one else cares. And okay. what if you're if you're covering that? You don't cover events. You cover people. You cover. Right. Whatever that is, you know, a lot of times you figure it out ahead of time if there's some interesting storylines or you cover it after the fact and you figure that out and you're telling stories about people because that's what draw that that's what draws readers in. Okay. Um, so in a sense, I, you know, I just had to talk to my kids like we just need to look outside of school for stories. And okay. and that was largely successful. I mean, our. I mean, on the newspaper side, we had our best year ever in many respects, because that was the year we fully, the kids fully embraced uh, an online first philosophy. We went from every two weeks to uh, monthly, which meant that you had two weeks where you just had to produce content for the web. And that was really successful. Then the kids were really sharp. They went ahead and recruited lots of illustrators because they knew we would not have a lot of photographs. Okay. So they were able to do that. And then, of course, in the Instagram world, the graphic is the most important thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's either the photo or the um, illustration that draws a person and then they decide if they want to read the content. Yeah. Sometimes and sometimes we would keep stories real short, put them all on the on Instagram or we would create there's something called Linktree, which is a convenient way to get to stories. Okay. Um, Funny thing, it's a third party thing and you would think that something like a company that's run by facebook would make linking really easy yeah <laughs> uh, but i mean yeah. you, you know in the meetings you get you know you have the instagram people say no nope, we just have to keep it the make it feel yeah. different than facebook it's like whatever yep. yeah. um yeah. It, it, by the way as a side note it cracks me up that all the kids have left facebook and they've gone to instagram they, yeah facebook still owns them it's hilarious yeah well, now they're all migrating over to TikTok, right? That's the uh, the current right. place. I don't know. I've 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 given up on trying to keep up with the uh, trend in that stuff. I just kind of watch it from afar, um, and for good or bad, right? Because, like for example, this podcast, I would love to get more people listening to it. I just have no idea how to do that, um, right? And, and but that's a different story. Yeah, that's a yeah. Marketing's tough. Yeah. Uh, what was it like from an administration and a as a teacher's position, uh, keeping the wheels on the the school system and the process? With newspaper, it, they were incredibly self sufficient. Okay, and and they did a really nice job. And 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 since I knew it was my last year, I had a um, my successor took one of the classes. Okay. And so it was idea of transitioning. There was a lot of, but there still was a lot of communication. 
Um, I would go into the six period class via Zoom sometimes and partly just to say, check in with the kids who I'd had in the past. Right. Because I have a lot of kids for four years and and that meant a lot. I mean, my first few weeks of that year was only meant only spent making connections with kids. That's all that mattered. Sure. Because the new kids coming in, you hadn't met. You didn't physically meet at all. Right. Right. And that's even true. That was true in photography. Um, Yearbook was always a different thing because it's your book is so visual and photograph based that that Mm -hmm. as a coherent group never really took off. Okay. Uh, Kids did their work for sure. I mean, you know, but not at a same level as the newspaper kids were doing. Um, We, we ended up on the year and we went back, we all went back to school in April and over a Memorial day weekend, for 30 hours, I was in the room with my yearbook editors, and they were essentially not only going over everything, but kind of redoing layouts and designs and stories because yeah. it was really impossible. It was very difficult that year to get the kids well trained. Um, the classic thing is, you know, just no one, you know, you might be in your Zoom classroom and, not, and very few people have cameras on or paying right. any kind or paying any kind of attention or whatever. Kids were dealing with a lot of issues um, when I was mm-hmm. in my photography classes. I mean, I had an I had eight a.m. photography classes, huh. and any eight a.m. class uh, via Zoom is is idiotic. But that- fortunately, photography is one of the easiest classes to do online um, okay. be- because you you know you dem- I could still demonstrate concepts pretty mm-hmm. easily, and they're just using their cell phones. And they could, I would record them. I would right. talk to them live and then post the recording because honestly, some of them weren't even, the, their camera's on or their camera's on for a second, they were going back to sleep. And that's okay. Yeah. I, in many ways, I mean, in some ways it, for me, it was more incredibly boring. Yeah. Um, so dull, such a dull year because there just weren't the interactions. And what I'm used to in things like photography the best part of photography is when they come back from shooting and we yeah. sit down on the computer and look at their work and discuss the work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's most, that's the most fun thing to do. And, and not only because we're discussing their work one-to-one, which is easy to do, but then you just naturally start asking them questions about themselves. Right? And that's right. what you, you naturally get to know them better that way. Exactly. And okay. um, photography for me was a real, you know, teaching, not only did that reinforce, I reinvent my career. Um, and then I became much more devoted to photography, but it also changed the way I related to kids because the kids in photography were different from any other class. Okay. Um, and they were a bigger cross section of the school as a whole. The largest ethnic group in my photo classes were um, Hispanic. Okay. And at, at the school overall, it's only 25%, but you know, they were right. at least more than a third of the class. And while I've always taught Hispanic kids throughout my entire career, it just was a different way of, you know, it's just great getting their stories more. And I just found yeah. myself hungry for their stories and their different experiences. And while I always knew it, I got to know it on a much more kind of a personal and detailed level. And and basically, it's always the same. The kids are, kids are say, the same no matter what you're doing. They want respect. They want... yeah. They know I'm honest and so and straightforward, so they respect that from me. And 
you know, and I, but I also had to become a lot softer as a teacher in an AP English class. You just look at them with a, a slight scowl and they start, you know, they hide because they're going to do, and they shut up and they do whatever you need yeah. to do because they're so driven by teacher approval and by grades and all that stuff. Well, these kids, it was a different approach with them. And all I, and the best approach I ever came up with, I did this on a number of occasions where I would say, okay, we, we went over their work and I'd go, okay, your photographs are good. You all, pretty much all of you got an A on this assignment. Congratulations. And then I'd go, that said, <laughs> these are so boring. <laughs> I mean, you did everything I asked you. And I would literally say, God bless you. I really appreciate that you did exactly what I asked you to do. But now I'm thinking, let's, let's go to another level here. Let's call it yearbook level photography. And here's okay. some of the ways you can do that better. And what was great about doing it that way is I validated their effort. I validated their work. Mm -hmm. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I was able, and it took me a while to discover this, but I was able to say, here's how you could really make it good. And what was amazing was how many, what, what a large percentage of the class would take that extra day to really try to do better. You know, at least half the class, which from my point of view, like, you know, think about all the kids who say, okay, great, I got a good grade. I don't need to redo this. Well, half of them would redo it. Would go and back do a and redo it. Job. And yeah. so as a result, most of the academic shots in the yearbook came out of my photo classes, cool. which, okay. which was really nice and you know and then at, at the same time i was able to talk to them as a because i was every summer taking photo workshops at okay. to be a better photographer because i'm a good writer i didn't need to learn anything more about writing even though we know it's a lifelong process but in terms yeah. of teaching it in terms of being competent i'm a very good writer but i wouldn't put myself at the same level as a photographer and there were so okay. many times you go in there and you go like if you were discussing cropping, I go, folks, you know, some of you are going to have better ideas about this than I will. Or I have yeah. my biases about the way I like to crop a photo. Um, but there's often my rule to my kids is there's at least two good crops for every photo. And there's always one bad crop. Like if yeah. I cut off your head, that's a bad crop. Yeah. But there's always, yeah. you know, there's always legitimate discussions about how much extra room you put into a photo and and things like that. And, what, you know, once you make yourself vulnerable or you put yourself in there as a learner in that yeah. situation, and the kids are much more willing to step forward and, and contribute. And that was the other learning thing I, I figured out. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, like, in an AP English class, if you are not an expert at the writing, they'll chew you up and spit you out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> kids kids are ruthless yes <laughs> well they can be um, in that setting because they expect that from the teacher those kids tend to be yeah. a little contemptuous of of any teacher who seems yeah. in any way kind of vulnerable i can see that right i mean they're they're committing the extra effort for the ap course they're committing exactly. financial resources to make it happen as well um there's a lot at stake ultimately in the end because of um college credit that's tied to the other end of it and just as any consumer would be, right, in their life, if you go and you spend a lot of money and effort on something, you expect return on your investment. So right. more power to them for being that way, right? You you know, it's kind yeah. of... Yeah. Oh, well, cool. I'm just lucky in that I was very well trained and uh, never had to face that from students. <laughs> cool. So now you're retired. What's the next six months look like for you? How are you feeling about uh, the world right now? What are you doing? Well, 
first of all, I'm really glad I'm not there. I think this is a tough year. I think it's in the publications, there's a lot of retraining that's taking place out of necessity. Okay. And I hate going, I hate going backwards. There's something about that that made me nuts. I think um, in other classes and other teachers are facing kids who've really lost a lot over the year. Mm-hmm. And, hope, and hopefully they're going to be patient enough to say, okay, we can only cover so much. And this, this with older kids, I'm curious about this. Is that a, um, a maturation issue? Why is it that kids who are still in school lose as much over the course of a year than say an adult who's out in the workspace? Um, not that I'm saying I don't go, you know, blitzy from time to time, on things that I've learned, but there's this sense that I get it a little bit more with younger kids, but when you're dealing with high school kids, why, why is that the case? Oh, okay. Well, there's a lot of aspects to that. Um, I can give you an example in the yearbook world. The kids just didn't learn skills. They didn't okay. really learn things like interviewing and okay. didn't give a lot of good ex- examples of how to do that. And they're just, that's what I mean by the reteaching. Okay. In the academics, I think what's so interesting is the way the kids seem to shut down during 2020. Um, okay. The second the school said, you know, your grade is now frozen in place, a huge, because the problem is, is what we do is we pound out, schools are really good at destroying passion for learning. Okay. And to me, that is the biggest issue with um the plethora of advanced placement classes and, and the um, you know, the perceived competition to get into colleges. I think Mm -hmm. we've done a great job at just absolutely destroying any kind of passion for learning Yeah. now. And one of the reasons why I grew tired of advanced placement was that the kids would just, the kids would do anything I asked them, you know, on a Tuesday, if I assigned a 10 page paper, for Thursday, they would do it. Yeah. And they'd go ahead and be up all night and do it. And and sensible kids would have just looked at me and told me to go to hell. Okay. And and I and and I would have respected any kid who did that because that's exactly what I would have deserved. So in that sense, and they and they were there's sort of a drudgery, um, they're almost like automatons the way they go about it. Cause they say, you know, and all they want is just let me know what I need to do to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really bad and it's hard for them to do deep dives. They have no passion for that for the most part. I mean, of course they're, you know, it, on the other hand, there's the kids who spend four years in journalism. They're doing it there because they love it. That's right. an entirely different thing. Yeah. But why, you know, taking five, six AP classes, it's not obvious to me. There, there's certainly no process for them. It's about getting through with an end result. Yeah, and that's I, all. I would agree for, with that. so, as for so many of them, that, and that's not the kids. It's not their fault. It's. I think it's the. I think it's the school itself, and I think it's. I think parents have so, a lot of parents have some blame for that as well, um, just because of the way they push their kids. I mean, but it is interesting because what one thing we've realized is how much kids can actually accomplish. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're achieving, they achieve at higher levels now than, than certainly when I was in high school. Um, and I talk about being a really good student. 
yeah, and I know in terms of my reading background and my his, his background in history, I was far. I would have been far beyond any kids now, and but I was also far beyond a lot of my peers at that point. But I pursued that, and I loved it, and I had the space to do that. Um, there's a cost. There's a cost to that, though, in the kids themselves, right? Um, yeah. I hear these stories constantly, and the student and that young people seem to are less independent and seem to have less grit. What we would describe as grit as far as dealing with things or a certain type of um, independence to figure things out themselves. And I, you know, that's something I hear all the time. I never really saw that just because it was a different situation. But to me, the big difference was when I moved from teaching honors English to AP, um, again, AP became a grind for the students as well as the teacher. And I love teaching AP. I mean, teaching the kids to write and think well was just incredibly satisfying and they appreciated it but what and and i still we still had enough discussion of books and things but when i was teaching honors english my program was just as rigorous but it wasn't quite as focused on writing in the same way Um, okay what did we focus on like i did a semester-long project in contemporary american poetry and it wasn't all we did but it was a semester-long thing in which kids read on their own responded informally in journal format and formed themselves into groups, eventually taught the poet to the class. And, you know, the effect of every student's attitude about poetry became so much better by the end of that process. And Mm -hmm. it was a lot of, it was really student centered. And, you know, I used a lot of um, reader response techniques and made it sort of low stress for a long time. And that worked. And, you know, I or I remember discussions of I think we were doing the Grapes of Wrath one year. And I remember a kids came in one morning and say, are we going to discuss the book? And they were so excited that we we're going to discuss the book that yeah. day. And that yeah. wasn't really happening in AP anymore. And again, it was um, get us through it, get us through it. And then also yeah. I became in some way, I mean, I, obviously I became a better teacher of writing. Yeah. Um, and that helped me as a writing teacher in journalism as well. But what we lost and, you know, like I would have kids do um, maybe creative thing, responses to literature. Well, mm-hmm. before AP, they did wonderful things. After AP, they had no idea how to do it because they were not being, you know, they never saw my full bag of tricks ever again. Right. right. You know, all the okay. ways, creative ways we would have to respond to literature. And I just, that's the one, one of the things I think we've lost because what we've really done is we have failed in the affective domain of really making kids enthusiastic. I mean, in AP, they don't even teach literature anymore. And lit and lit has, is largely dying from the English curriculum. My God, that's that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And even though they're still teaching books, there's a bit of dummying down with curriculum and those are issues, and I'm just thankful I don't have to deal with that, and I haven't had to deal with it for quite a while. Um, but right. the passion, you know, I, and I, and one of the things I think maybe one of the few good things of the pandemic was it did give students space to pursue passions. Okay. Now yeah. it gave them the space for it. Did they take advantage of it? Well, some did, and some didn't, and it was real obvious. 
at times. I mean, the you know, the kids who were still doing not much beyond uh, video games, no, they didn't take advantage of that in any way. Right. But, you know, kids were pursuing artistic things and just, yeah. and they suddenly had more time. We were done at school with school by 1230. Okay. And, you know, they were getting better sleep, possibly, unless they were online all night. And that's with a lot of kids. Um, yeah. But it definitely was an opportunity. And, and I think my... The thing that makes me saddest as we get back to something that, uh, you know, that people used to call normal is that we're going to lose opportunities that the pandemic presented. Mm. Um, so so you're you're arguing for a more of a work life balance for kids absolutely. that gives them more of that time and less. Yeah. OK, I, I can definitely agree with I, that. I mean, what I what I really hate is sort of a forced compliance in the educational system of both teachers and students. Um, Some of it just seems really ridiculous to me. There was no reason for my kids to spend five hours a week in my journalism class. There was absolutely no reason except for accounting purposes and liability. Interesting. I, I just, I mean, it doesn't mean that those kids didn't use the time well. But they, and they had time. And that's one, again, another reason why they like it. They might do homework. They might collaborate on homework. Um, so much of their work had to be done outside of class, even. So they always had time to do that. And that's good. But on the other hand, maybe it would have been more valuable for them to have been able to come in remotely. Yeah. Well, it, the, the new normal is still trying to figure itself out. Uh, so who knows what we get to see? Maybe somebody with the right imagination will jump in and be able to help. Uh, help uh, set a new course. I think the work world might have, will probably have a lot more success that way. But then there's so many other economic factors. You know, yeah. no longer, you know, real estate. You don't have to rent space as much anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. But, you yeah. know, schools are essentially holding cells for the parents. There's <laughs> an element of that that's absolutely will yeah. never change. Back to the next six months, back to what you're doing now. So my this year is basically going to be focused on just health, um, exercising and getting a lot of walking in. And that's the that's the first thing. The second thing is I'm already I forget if I mentioned this already. I'm mentoring four teachers. Oh, awesome. No, you hadn't mentioned that. Yeah. So one my successor at Redondo, one at in Long Beach, one in Los Altos, California, up north. And another one in the valley. Um, cool. So I'll, you know, I'll meet with them at least phone and email and Zoom. Um, I intend to hit every single place at some point. In yeah. fact, I'm going up north soon and hopefully going to meet that teacher. Yeah. And that's fun. Um, I love working with that. Um, I'm still working with my yearbook rep. I'll be doing certain things for her in working with okay. schools. Um, I still love that. I'm not tired of working with students by any stretch. In fact, what I like and, and the beauty, it's like being a grandparent where you, uh, you know, you get the grandchild that is this, a group of students, but you, there's no yeah. diapers. There's no grades. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah. You get to spoil them all day and then they go home at night. Yep. Great. That's exactly. Awesome. That's awesome. And it's seriously, you walk in and they see you as, as this, you know, sort of rock star expert and, it's fantastic. That's that's terrific. I, that you know yeah. what that sounds like the 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 note that we should end on. 
Um, Mitch, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. And as a parent of one of your students for four years who definitely saw you as a mentor, I want to thank you for everything you did to help shape him um, and uh, make him a better person going forward. Well, you're welcome, Jason. It was always a pleasure.